Turn with me to Matthew 18. Very familiar passage, but I felt like that's where God led me as I was looking for a message, asking him for a message this week. It's a familiar passage, we know it well, but I hope we can see some things in maybe a little different light. As, as I studied this, this chapter, there were, I saw some things a little different than I've seen them before. The title of the message is God's values. There's five values, five things in this chapter that I see that God values. He, he, Jesus, in, his, in talking to his disciples and the people around him, gives them, shows them how much he values these things. Those five things starts with the value God places on a child. Secondly, the value God places on immature believers. Thirdly, the value God places on brotherhood. Fourthly, the value God places on relationships. And fifthly, the value God places on forgiveness. They all sort of tie together. And Jesus did an amazing job as you look at this, this text of tying them together. So I'd like to look first at the first 11 verses. I want to read those verses. Uh, at this time, let's read Matthew 18, verses 1 to 11. At the, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore? If thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off, and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. So the disciples came to Jesus and they were having this debate among them who, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus just sort of removed that from the disciples. Isn't it the way it quite often is? We get into, <laughs> I don't know, this competition between us as humans. And Jesus says, no, wait a minute, no. Forget yourselves. Let's look at this child over here. But is Jesus really saying that children are the most important in the kingdom of heaven? He didn't say that. He uses them as an example. They are important. We learn from children and how they relate. They're extremely important in the kingdom of heaven. But it's the mature Christian who humbles himself to the place of a child. 
to the attitude of a child that is the greatest in God's kingdom. The one who thinks nothing of himself. Children are marked quite often by a simple faith. Just believing what their parents tell them. You know, it's just that way with little children. You tell them something, that's the way it is. Dad said it. Are we that way with God? Another mark is genuine forgiveness. Two little children can be playing and get into a squabble and a fight, and it can just be ever so bad. And ten minutes later, they're best friends again. They forgive and they move on. And children have the capacity to genuinely love with a Christ-like love. Even to the point that a child will often love even their abuser. There are children that are in horrible situations, treated terribly, and yet they love the person that is doing those unkind things to them. Isn't that a challenge to us as mature people? Supposedly mature Christians? Can we be like a little child? How do I measure up in God's standard of greatness? And verse 5 brings out that our standard or who we are as a Christian is measured by how we relate with children. And that's, when I realized that, it kind of set me back. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. How we relate to children is how we're relating to Christ. But I want to expound that a little bit further. The Greek, the word child in the Greek is pahedion. If you look that up, it's an infant, a child, or a half-grown boy or girl, or an immature Christian. It's all part of the same um, description. That word means all of those. So how are we relating to immature Christians? Jesus isn't only talking about a three or four year old child. He's talking about the immature, the young Christians among us. And then as we read on down through that passage, we see that. Um, I'm trying to find where it says it. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, It's an immature Christian, a young believer. So to receive or accept a new believer in all their immaturity, in all their mistakes, is to receive Christ himself. Accepting and loving all believers, no matter their level of maturity, is a mark of a true believer. And Jesus is laying the foundation here of brotherhood. Christian fellowship within the body, loving each other just like we do Christ. It's a tall order. The basis for brotherhood is found in Christ himself, living out his example as we we relate to each other. That's the only way true Christian brotherhood can exist or flourish. 
is to be Christ-like to each other, no matter who the other person is. And as we go through this chapter, Christ, Jesus fleshes that out a little bit, what that looks like. Verse 6 to 10, and I'm not going to really delve too deeply into this, but it tells us how important it is to God that we don't drive his sheep away. It would be better for us to lose both our hands or both our feet or one of our eyes than to drive someone away from the gospel by our actions, by our words. Maybe it's not what, how we interact with them, but maybe it's an example we leave for them. That's, that's astounding. Let's look at verse 11. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that we don't drive someone away from Christ, away from God? Verse 11 says, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. That verse is the key to this entire chapter. And we'll refer to it several more times as we go along. The Son of Man is come to save that which is, was lost. If we drive someone away from God by anything that we do, we are destroying what God has been working from the creation to do. He has been, all that he has done, all he has created, is for one thing, and that's so that he can have a relationship with us as humanity. The whole plan of salvation was for that one purpose. And when we drive someone away from God, we are defeating his entire purpose. And that's the purpose of verse 11. Jesus came to save those that are lost. Is that our purpose? Is that our goal? But I want us to think about this. Are the souls of man all that Jesus came to save? Is that all he was talking about when he said he came to save that which was lost? I don't believe he was. I think there's more. And the reason is the rest of the chapter, after Jesus said that, the rest of the chapter, he goes on to give us instruction and direction on how to work out interpersonal relationships. So Jesus didn't come just to save souls. He came to save lost relationships, lost marriages, broken homes. He came to redeem all that sin had broken and torn apart, to bring back those pieces he came to save that which was lost. Is that what we're doing? Is that who I am? Is that my goal? So what is our part in this saving process? This saving the lost? How do we fit into his plan? And do we understand how important it is to follow his directives in the rest of the chapter that he gives here? It might help us if we understand the value God places on children, on immature believers, and on these other things that we're going to be talking about. We've already talked about a little bit about how God values children and how they are basically an example of what we should be as, as mature believers. Now let's look a little more at what God, at the value God places on immature believers, young believers that don't know 
all the experienced believers do. Let's look at verses 12 to 14. I'm going to read those now. Verse 14. Even so, I'm sorry, verse 12. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should, should perish. So we see the heart of God in these verses. God loves the little ones. God loves the immature Christians, the ones that don't know all the ins and outs and how to be strong. And the reason I say that they are immature Christians is because he refers to them as his sheep. And until someone has become a Christian, they're not really his sheep. And I believe they're immature because he calls them little ones, the little sheep. He longs to draw them near to himself and to protect and lead them. And we see the pains that, he, that he's describing the shepherd going through to find that lost sheep. And we know what Jesus did in coming to the earth. We talked about it this morning. He putting on flesh and walking among us. Experiencing what we experience to win us to himself. He longs for that soul to be safe and secure by his side. But he's not only concerned about children and immature believers. So we've seen how much God values children. We see how much he values immature believers. Let's look at verses 15 to 20. And this is the value God places on brotherhood. This passage tells us, tells us how to maintain relationships within the brotherhood. Remember, his, his reason for coming was to save the lost. Save that which had been taken away. And he is giving us the best formula possible to achieve that goal within the church, the goal of saving the loss. As we look at these verses, remember that this isn't a suggestion, this is a command. And it's a hard command. It's one that we struggle with as humans. Let's read verses 15 to 20. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth, as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father, which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So we see a progression in these verses. We'll start with verse 1. It's, down, it's found in, in verse 15. 
If your brother trespasses against you, what's entailed in that? Well, I looked up the word trespass in the Greek, and it is the word hamartano. It has the connotation to miss the mark, as in to not share in the prize. So it's, it has the sort of the connotation of you and your brother being on a team. And he does something that makes your team fail. Or he does something to make you mess up. It also has the description of to err, to sin. It means faults, offenses, or trespasses. So if your brother does something that affects you negatively, and you struggle with it, if we have a problem with someone else or something they are doing, and hopefully if you see your brother sin, you have a problem with it, we have one of two choices. First choice is accept whatever they're doing that offends us and get over it. Not everything that offends us is a sin. There are a lot of interpersonal struggles that are not sin. When we face that, when we struggle with someone, we have one or two choices. We can go... We can either get over it. I'm sorry. We can either say, you know what? Really, that offense is not that great. It may be in me. I may be misunderstanding the situation. I'm going to forgive and let it go on. Let it go. That's the first first choice we have. Or we can go directly to them privately, one-on-one, and discuss it with them. Jesus does not leave room in this passage for anything else. That can be hard. In fact, it is hard. It is hard to address someone personally where they have failed you or done something that offended you in some way. But Jesus doesn't leave any room for anything else. And as a general rule, this step should be carried out in person. Sometimes it's not possible. And depending on the situation, maybe a phone call or a letter, maybe even a text might work for small matters. But remember, The basis for this step is brotherhood. And face-to-face conversations are the best ways for brotherhood to happen. It's not always possible, like I said. But this command goes completely against our human tendency. Y'all know what it's like. Our tendency is to share with everyone else around us about this situation. And maybe even share the problem in a rather lengthy prayer request. There is room for prayer support in dealing with, with offenses, with such with matters like this. In fact, I would highly encourage, if you have a struggle with another person and you don't know how to deal with it, I would highly encourage asking for prayer in that, but by one person that you trust a mature, solid believer who will then also hold you accountable for how you deal with it. Prayer support is good. 
but it has to be done in confidence. Remember, Jesus' reason for coming to this earth, to save that which was lost. What is being lost is a relationship between you and that person. When we deal with an offense, our heart's desire must be in line with Jesus' desire to save that which was lost. Jesus wanted to save relationships. Nothing he did was ever in retaliation. Nothing he ever he did was ever in coercion. In fact, his response to being wrong was, Father, forgive them. Jesus places an extremely high value on brotherhood. And if we avoid this first step, we destroy the very foundation of love and trust that brotherhood is built upon. Just like Jesus, our goal must be to save and restore, not retaliate and get even. Whether it's strained relationships or soul slipping into sin, we must follow Jesus' directives and reach out personally to that person. It starts with us. It may not end there, but it must start on a personal level so that brotherhood can flourish. And I'm guessing that probably nine times out of ten, some of you older ones have experienced this a lot more than me, but probably nine times out of ten, the second step is not needed. When Jesus' directives are followed, we take this first step in the reconciliation process. Either we will realize that we're mistaken about the other person's motives, and we will change how we feel, or the other person will see the error of the way through the love you've shown, and they will change. When we don't follow this command, we miss one of the most important blessings of a church. That's brotherhood. Close relationships within the body of Christ is what makes the church flourish. It's what we all long for. It's why we want to be part of a body. And out of those close relationships comes discipleship. And discipleship starts with someone caring enough about someone else to invest time into that person. That's discipleship. Giving of ourselves to invest in someone else. And may, be, may I be as bold as to say that some of the best relationships come out of really difficult situations. So don't shy away when it's hard. When there is something hard between you and someone else, or you see something, if you don't follow this step, if I don't follow this step, we will miss the very basis of what God wants for his church. Close brotherhood. As Ephesians 4.16 says, we become fitly joined together. As we see into each other's hearts and we, we invest in each other through discipleship, through encouragement, maybe even through exhortation, we become fitly joined together and we become a body of believers. How we handle this first step will make or break a brotherhood. We cannot bypass Jesus' command here in verse 15 if we want true brotherhood in the church. Verse 16 is the second step. Jesus recognizes that some people are hard of heart and won't hear or change. He sees that. He knows that. And only then should we take one or two others with us. 
He didn't say take the whole church a second time. He said one or two others. And I would say, if you do that, if it comes to that, make sure those two, that those two one or two people are neutral to the situation. And they're people that the other person trusts. So that that person doesn't feel controlled, doesn't feel manipulated, but can trust you and what you're doing and what you're saying. The beauty of that is that those two brothers or those two people, one or two people, also can speak into your life, into my life. They hold us accountable. That's what they're there for, to look at this situation evenly. And they hold us accountable for our side of it. Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of how brotherhood can grow. So you're involving two or three people in this situation. If it's reconciled, those three people understand each other better. And the church becomes closer because of it all. The third step, verses 17 to 18, it's a more difficult step. Take it to the church. A brother, this person won't hear two or three people. It says the church needs to be involved. Now as I see this, remember, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is never a manipulation. This should never be done to control or to, or to um, uh, that's not the right word. Never done as a punishment or as a manipulation when we bring the whole church into, into this process. The reason Jesus is saying bring the church in is so that that person can be saved. How, is that, how does that happen? The whole church then understands the situation and becomes a, a unified body in reaching out to this person and trying to draw them back in love. I believe that Jesus' heart in this command is so that the collective body understands the situation and so they can, as a church, reach out to that person. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That should be our goal too, no matter what we're facing. I don't have the complete understanding of the next two verses. I don't know quite what verse 18 means. Totally. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What we loose on earth is loose in heaven. But I do know that it refers to the decisions that are made as a collective body. They carry a lot of weight. We need to be careful what we as a body of believers decide. And again... All that is done should be done out of love and care for the person's soul. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. And this is the value God places on relationships. He values relationships so much that he makes a promise here. Let's read it. Verses 19 and 20. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. These verses hold the key for conflict resolution. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, that's the key. When you have two people or three people that are trying to deal with a conflict, with a, a struggle, 
if they can lay themselves and their own personal desires and hurts aside and gather in Jesus' name and say, how does the Lord want us to work this out? He says, I will be there. He values relationships so much that if we follow his steps, he will be in the midst of us. He is personally invested in our relationships. God places a very high value on relationship. Verses 21 to 35. And I don't want to read all this. This is the value God places on forgiveness. Time's getting away. We know the story here. Peter says, Lord, well, actually, Peter, as, Peter, as Jesus is talking about all these things, Peter's realizing that Jesus is giving a different way of relating with people. He's introducing something that Peter doesn't know how to deal with. And he says, Lord, what about forgiveness? How do, how do we forgive people? How many times should I forgive someone? And we know what Jesus says. Basically, forgive and don't keep track. In fact, keeping track of how often you forgive someone actually indicates that you haven't really forgiven them. Now, I'm putting forth a standard here. Jesus put forth a standard here that is impossible as on your human, as a human being, on your own strength. I don't think that what Jesus is saying is possible on our own volition or own will. There's a song that says, to forgive is a sign of presence divine, to errors but human. And I believe that's true. True forgiveness is divine. It is something that God gives us, enables us to do. And to err, we all do that. So we should be able to forgive through God's strength because we've been forgiven. And for the Christian, forgiveness is not an option. And we know the story that Jesus tells next of the servant who was forgiven millions of dollars by his king, but he would not forgive his fellow servant a $10 debt. How close do we come to being like that servant? Are we letting some wrong or maybe many wrongs? Maybe there's a relationship that has continued to rub you wrong. The other person has seemingly wronged you many times. Are we letting those wrongs and unforgiveness ruin what Jesus came to save? He came to save relationships. He came to make to create brotherhood. Are we Stepping in line with his will for us. The heart of Jesus was redemption. Redeeming broken or strained relationships is what he longs to do. But he cannot work until we accept and follow his mandates through forgiveness. In fact, he says at the end of the chapter that if we don't forgive... So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto ye, you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. He didn't even say in that verse, if they ask for forgiveness. I've heard that said, well, if they don't ask for forgiveness, I don't need to forgive them. That's not in these verses. We cannot be forgiven if we're not willing to forgive. So why is forgiveness so important? In our human mind, 
if we forgive someone something, we release them from a debt they owe us. We give something to them that is ours. And we, by nature, are very selfish creatures. It's very hard to do. The funny thing about forgiveness, though, is that we're the ones that are set free. That person, even though we forgive them, is still held accountable by God for what they have done. If it's a sin, if it's whatever's done, they're still held accountable by God. We release ourselves. We release them also, but we're the ones that are set free. When we forgive, we let go of all that emotion and hurts that kept us in bondage. The chain of pain and distrust that has kept us tied up for so long is broken. And we are free to love that person and feel good towards them again. Forgiveness frees us to love as Christ loved. This kind of forgiveness is not easy and is only possible through God's enabling grace. But Jesus knew it's the only way we could be free. Free from anger and pain, free from bitterness and jealousy, free to love others and even those that persecute us. But that also frees us to feel his love, frees us to walk with him. That freedom can only be found through forgiveness, forgiveness of others. I think I'll take the time to tell a little story. We met a man in, in Guatemala, born-again believer, genuine believer, had a beautiful family, he had an 18-year-old daughter and showed us a picture of her. She's a gorgeous young lady. Someone, I don't know all the details, he's very broken English, it was hard to catch all the stories, so I'm going to tell you what I remember of it. But this girl was molested at 18 years old. Because of that, she ended up hemorrhaging for a while, ended up dying of an infection. Hard, hard, hard things. I cannot imagine what that was like. Went to the she was taken to the hospital, and because of that, the hospital turned it to authorities. The authorities did some investigation, figured out who it was that had molested her. Remember, this man did not. He had nothing to do with the legal side of it. The family of the perpetrator immediately went into high gear and started persecuting this man and his family. They ended up having to go into hiding, move, kept moving and moving, place to place, mission to mission down there, trying to stay hidden from this perpetrator's family because they were, it was death threats, it was all kinds of stuff. Finally, this case came to trial. And they were required to be there for the trial. And in the trial, the, of course, the family had hired a high-end lawyer and he was able to swing the court to say there wasn't enough evidence to prove that, that their son was guilty. And all along, this man and his family had never pushed for re revenge or, or um, 
any legal action against the family. But they had just, for months and months, had dogged him and chased him and tried to, and threatened. Well, when the son was released, he really wasn't proven innocent, but he was released from um, the case. His family wanted to take him out to eat. All of a sudden, they wanted to be best friends again. He said that was the hardest thing for him to do, to sit down with that family, with that family in a restaurant and have a meal. But he did. He said food wouldn't hardly go down his throat. But he forgave them. After all of that, he could look at us and tell us that story, and there was no bitterness in his voice. There was no anger. I couldn't sense any any emotion of bitterness against that family as he told the story. He was telling a story of God's grace in his life. That's forgiveness. It didn't release that young man for what he did, but it released this father and their family to continue to live and be able to deal with the death of their daughter. Forgiveness. It frees us. And it is absolutely a prerequisite if we are going to have brotherhood. If we're going to be a church that is unified, we have got to learn to forgive. Verse 11 says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. He came to save lost sinners. He came to save lost marriages, lost homes, and lost relationships. And He came to set us free. He's given us the formula for success. Are we going to follow it? Are we going to forgive? Are we going to deal with situations in life the way he calls us to so that we can be free? God places a very high value on our relationships. Are we going to follow and carry on his values to those around us? Let's have a song.